Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Hey, Rain, let's start it out by uh, telling, I, I imagine a lot of our audience already knows who you are and what you do, but for anyone who may not, give us a little bit of the thumbnail, 50,000-foot introduction to who you are and what you do at Arca. Uh, sure. Uh, CEO and co-founder at Arca, which is an institutional asset manager in digital assets. Uh, we also create and innovate uh, novel uh, financial service products uh, that are invigorated or energized by blockchain. Uh, prior to uh, my time at Arca, I co-founded the exchange-traded fund company Wisdom Tree uh, in the early 2000s. So, Rain, lots of uh, news flow today. First of all, let's start it off there. Curious to get your take on what happened, uh, particularly with the Ripple ruling. We can also talk about the uh, Alex Mashinsky case that uh, is now with the courts. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on the Ripple summary verdict, summary judgment coming out today. Uh, sure. So it's always uh, dangerous uh, for non-legal people to opine on uh, legal happenings. Uh, but uh, we interpreted this as uh, very broadly, uh, specifically good for Ripple um, in a uh, security sense and, you know, what happens to a token after it's issued and specifically uh, what happens to tokens um, when they get to centralized exchanges. So, uh, as you've seen, uh, very good for Ripple, um, and you've seen the market action in that. And then other tokens follow through, like uh, on Sol, uh, Matic, um, and uh, great for centralized exchanges uh, like Coinbase. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The, the news flow on this has been extremely positive in terms of uh, what we're seeing getting written with the uh, reaction by some of the participants, Brad Garlinghouse taking a little bit of a victory lap, as I said earlier, the price action surging, obviously very dramatically. I can get you that chart. Uh, maybe we can get that tweeted out, Michelle, it would be great. But in the meantime, let me just tell you what happened with Ripple price action. I'm gonna give you the percent change on the day. Uh, but if you look at the chart, it's basically a vertical bar straight up from, uh, let's see. So it was trading around 45 cents. Now it's trading at roughly 79. It had been up as high as, uh, I think just shy of 90, so nearly doubling on the day. But, you know, as you said, and I think it's very well said, Rain, it's always difficult for non-legal people to opine on this matter. Uh, it's strange to see this kind of bifurcated ruling. I'm, I'm just going to read here from, from the Bloomberg report to give people a little bit of context on this, because it's being celebrated as kind of a, an unalloyed positive thing for the crypto space. And it seems a little more nuanced to me. I'm just going to read this here. A federal judge ruled that Ripple Labs Inc. token is a security when sold to institutional investors, but not the general public, a long-awaited decision that was widely hailed as a victory for the crypto industry over the SEC. U.S. Judge Annalisa Torres in New York on Wednesday said that the crypto firm's sales of its XRP token to sophisticated investors met the test for an investment contract under federal securities law because those buyers, quote, would have understood that Ripple was pitching a speculative value proposition for XRP with potential profits. But the judge said that didn't apply to programmatic investors, meaning 
the broader public buying crypto on exchanges. She said there was no evidence that such investors could parse the many statements made by Ripple about XRP. The judge said many statements cited by the Security and Exchange Commission in its suit against Ripple may not have been shared with the broader public. You know, here's my confusion on this. Again, I know neither you nor I are lawyers, right? But what's what's surprising to me is this this idea, this notion uh, that essentially that the sophisticated investors, qualified purchasers of these products would have been purchasing a security, but the broader crypto buying public would not. Does it just seems strange, doesn't it? Yeah, this is so. This is where um, <laughs> you know it's it's very good to be careful for us non-legal people, and our legal team is going through um, the actual uh, ruling um, very carefully, so we can come up with you know a very specific um, thoughts on it, but. It's broadly, this is a ruling on a summary judgment on some very specific legal issues. So there are things in there that apply very specifically to this case on whether the proper notice was given and things like that, which could be read as you know technicalities around this case and very specific to XRP and Ripple. And then broader things that are being read through by the market um, where uh, the interpretation of the actions of Ripple, like once it gets on an exchange, not be, no longer being a security. And then, um, like you said, that bifurcated nature of it. So when you when it goes onto an exchange and, and Ripple doesn't know who the buyer is, so there was no direct relationship. So it wasn't uh, a offering. But when it sold it to institutions, there was that direct relationship. So you could know who they were. And you did have a you know, an actual transaction between the two. So that could be uh, a inappropriate uh, offering of securities. So like you said, very nuanced and kind of confusing and not necessarily you when you look at it, um, necessarily a win in one way or the other. Um, and like, right. yeah, exactly. So th there's way more nuance right. in this. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I have to think about it longer before I can say whether the market is correct. Um, and it's broader right. interpretation here. Right. It, you know, exactly, Rain. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because it's one of those it's one of those rulings where, you know, I'm I kind of feel like I've been sitting there scratching my head thinking, am I the crazy one? Because everyone seems to be having this uniformly positive reaction to this ruling in the crypto space. And yet there are a lot of things uh, in the ruling that, you know, that I as a non-lawyer skimming through uh, found sort of concerning, like essentially saying that Ripple met the Howey test. It's a, it's a weird one. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of commentary on this. And by the way, I, I would imagine the suit is also subject to appeal. So I'm not sure we've necessarily heard the last of it. Um, that is at, at 100% correct. But I think what you're seeing here is also um, the residue of a completely changed uh, environment in digital assets. Um, and I can speak to this on. Um, yeah, this. Please. yeah, please. I mean, I, I want to bring this around to the broader conversation of what your broader thesis is uh, in terms of where we are right now. Obviously, this is just some news flow that we've had here today, but please. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, um, you know, like I mentioned, uh, CEO of a uh, institutional asset manager, um, we have uh, LPs in North America um, and internationally. Uh, as everybody knows who's involved in crypto, uh, the last year um, to 18 months has been very challenging, um, really starting um, with, I would say, the real downturn with Luna, um, then moving on to FTX, 
uh, banking crisis, right. um, and then the what was seen as an incredibly unfavorable and hostile regulatory environment with some of the rulings being handed down. So this was the environment and the type of questions that we were dealing with from both current LPs and prospective LPs. Um, what is the environment going to be like in the U.S.? Uh, how hostile the regulatory bodies are and things of that nature. Then um, there's a very, very clear point of when BlackRock filed uh, for its exemptive relief, um, when the entire narrative changed. And that, and people have to remember that was just a application for exemptive relief uh, by BlackRock for a spot ETF. Nothing was granted, not given, but the read-through was that BlackRock um, would not be involved in a space that was going to be found to be regulatorily illegal, um, and that there were certainly things to do here, and potentially um, they were going to get an ETF approved. Um, and that changed the entire uh, tone of the conversation, the way people were interpreting things. So I actually think that this same news um, might not have been interpreted as positively um, even a month ago. Um, it might have been seen as, you know, one more thing in the uh, Ripple saga, where here, all of a sudden, uh, where every piece of news was interpreted in negative light uh, just a month ago. Uh, now things are seen in quite a different light. I think that's extremely uh, well framed there. And I think that, you know, that's the bigger and broader context. And I think you're right. It did seem that the Terra Luna ecosystem collapsed was the beginning uh, of all sort of negative things in terms of the down cycle uh, crypto winter that we saw. Obviously, everything that happened at FTX as well uh, as a knock-on effect on that and you know dcg and genesis gemini all of those other uh you know challenges that we've seen in the space seem to be part of that sort of broader domino falling at the beginning and now as you say we seem to be in this cycle uh where there appears to be appears to be a thought definitely blackrock filing for exemptive relief around the spot bitcoin etf a key moment but as you say uh rain has not yet been granted Yes, but when you look at the news flow and where the space was, um, and we saw this, um, and I believe you had our CIO, Jeff Dorman, on earlier today, um, we have seen um, really what we thought was a bottoming, maybe not in price action, and you know, with, the, with a asset class as volatile as this, um, you can see quite a bit of movement even when you are at the bottom. Um, but really, almost everybody um, that was going to be out of crypto or digital assets was gone. Um, and it was unclear what the upward catalyst was going to be. And outside of it being deemed completely illegal, uh, no use cases or anything like that, it seemed like you were at a relative bottom. Um, and then you started to have things like the banking crisis, um, which was very positive, especially here in the US for digital assets, where um, <laughs> the idea of problems with your centralized banking authority was only theoretical prior to that all of a sudden became a very real thing when very large U.S. institutions uh, became insolvent overnight. It was quite eye-opening, I think, for U.S. Um, participants. Um, and then the news flow has really been um, uniformly positive or deemed that way from then. Even with um, some of the regulatory news, that was quite short-lived in its impact on price and the overall market. So you had a space that's still very small, um, where almost... All of the holders uh, that were going to be gone were gone and really just waiting for a upward catalyst. So that BlackRock news, while the actual buying 
of uh, Bitcoin will only be in the future, um, was a signal, especially to institutions, uh, that it was definitely going to be here to stay um, and that prices were going higher and they should start moving in. And it's been kind of a one-way uh, move since then where you've had almost the entire outflows from the space reverse in just a matter of a couple of weeks. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Yeah, and we should also add to that when we're talking about this updraft that's come in the wake of the BlackRock ETF spot Bitcoin ETF filing. We should also talk a little bit, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, on EDX markets uh, backed by Chuck Schwab, Fidelity, Citadel Securities, and others in terms of the broader marketplace perception of mainstream traditional financial players appearing to jump into the crypto markets, I guess it's fair to say, with both feet in the form of spinning up their own exchange. That's exactly right. Um, just another example, um, and these are two big ones. So BlackRock um, and EDX are very big, noisy examples of traditional financial service players jumping in. What is not as much thought about during these periods when you see these two very big uh, kind of bellwethers come in is there's actually been a tremendous amount of activity in this space from traditional financial players. Even through this period of the downturn, it just wasn't quite as noisy. Um, and it became almost a little um, dangerous uh, to say you were involved in that. Um, so really, um, many people were still here working quietly during this period, but it became less in vogue to say you were. Um, all of a sudden, um, those efforts are becoming more public and people coming out of the woodwork. So this is really just an indication um, to everybody that uh, digital assets are here to stay. Um, the big boys are making very big efforts into it um, and putting a lot of dollars and thoughts around it. And they're probably not doing that if it's going to be uh, found to be regulatory illegal, um, you know, made illegal, go away in that regard. Uh, so really just two very strong signals um, to continue those efforts for people that were still doing them and to restart those efforts uh, from people that had paused or to initiate those efforts from people that had not done that yet. And that's we've seen that in our uh, client base. A lot of our clients are pensions, endowments, foundations, um, institution, real institutional investors. And when I say clients, uh, people that are going through our due diligence process and things like that. Uh, there was a an enormous pause, and, and I say pause, not over, um, after, after FTX. Um, and, and people have to understand, um, in the world of financial services, a fraud like FTX is very different than um, a loss of capital or an asset class going down or things like that. When you have um, a large amount of people give money to what turns out to be a clear fraud, it, it puts the brakes on um, across the sector. This is the type of activity where people that make those allocations potentially have uh, employment issues, um, service providers, auditors that were looking at things like that um, have liability issues. Um, what's the fallout going to be around that? So this was a huge chilling and pause uh, type of moment. And I don't think you really saw a change on that literally until you saw the BlackRock news. 
what's extremely interesting to me about what you just said there, and I'd love to dive in and get a little bit more detail from you about this, is the idea of, of essentially the allocators, large pension funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, the kind of folks who are your clients. I would love to get a little bit of a context on, generally speaking, what their perspective is on this when they reach out to you and are interested in getting exposure to this space. What do they say? What are their goals? What are their concerns? What are their fears? Sure. So what's interesting about that, and, th and it, this really goes to the heart of what we were trying to do at ARCA. When we founded uh, the company in 2018, we saw a white space in the market for institutional asset management. So we thought the thesis was that digital assets were going to become an important asset class. Um, but unlike other asset classes, there weren't really good institutional options. And what was interesting about digital assets from its inception, um, because it was really something that was outside of the financial sector, it took a track that was different uh, than other asset classes. Most asset classes um, right. or investment products um, are first offered to institutions and sophisticated investors and then uh, are packaged and rolled out to retail. It was kind of right. opposite for digital right. assets. Um, so our idea was that if you created a company um, that really focused on risk management, um, due diligence, um, counterparty due diligence, all the things that uh, a traditional investor very accustomed to seeing in their offerings, um, that right. that would be a great um, offering. And that turned out to be true. The only issue is that in digital assets, it's still incredibly hard to do that. And uh, it's not mechanical. And the things that you're doing are, are very challenging. So those are the things we have people that have been in our due diligence process all the way from the founding of the company that have still not allocated, um, which is fine because the challenge for institutions, pensions, and endowments is they cannot have uh, be involved in a thing like FTX. And you had some pensions and, and endowments involved in a large way um, in FTX. So that was a very chilling event for him for them so they're very concerned yeah. about fraud reputation those type of things here let me I'm, I'm so glad you described that and i think you described it so well you know it's interesting when we have these twitter spaces people come to us from a, a, a wide variety of backgrounds i always like to take nothing for granted so rain explain to people who may never have spent a day working in the financial services sector what the role of these allocators are who are pension funds uh, sovereign wealth funds, um, allocators in general, what are their needs? Who do they represent? What are their goals? Talk a little bit about that piece, because I feel like it's one of those things that very often people skip over when they have this conversation. Sure. So when people say, when we cater to institutions, like the, the idea of institutional investors is a very large bucket, and it's more nuanced in each of those areas. Um, so when we talk about pensions, uh, we are generally talking about defined benefit pension plans for uh, large companies or governmental institutions where um, right. they are taking retirement money um, and they are taking, you know, a little bit of that money from every paycheck and then investing it over time to meet the retirement needs um, of their constituents. So these are very risk averse. Um, they generally have been in the 60-40 bond uh, portfolio over time. Um, what's interesting is that as yields on bonds went down, um, all of these type of institutions were forced further out on the risk curve uh, to meet those obligations. And they've gotten way more involved in venture and things like that. 
um, and I'll, I'll have a lot of actually liquidity issues uh, as those have gone on. Um, so that's pensions. Um, endowments right. are the, um, you know, the basically the funds around universities and educational institutions. Um, and then sovereign wealth funds uh, are the large investment funds for countries. And again, this is managing the assets of those countries or institutions um, to grow them um, and meet the goals of those institutions. But broadly speaking, very risk averse, um, have lots of checks and balances. Um, it's, it's a very long investment process. Um, even with well understood asset classes, um, like an 18 to 36 month due diligence process is not unusual for them. So they're thinking in years and decades, um, often um, in the way they look at the world, which is very, very different uh, than crypto, where things might come and go um, in a couple of weeks. So it's, it's kind of a mismatch um, in um, right. the way they look at the world um, and what's going on in, in digital assets. Yeah, excellent description, and I think such an important one for people to understand the context of the conversation. I mean, the interesting thing is, though, uh, many people who don't work in financial services may not understand these constructs, may not understand how this works. Many people, I'm sure, on this call have exposure to these funds via their via their uh, their own benefits, uh, their own contribution plans. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, broadly speaking, when in those plans, um, what they are finding is, and you saw it. Um, you know, in uh, the pension kind of crisis in Great Britain is that there's a mismatch uh, between uh, the assets that these uh, funds hold um, and the obligations that they have to their um, constituents. And that gap is kind of increasing. Um, so they're all seeking um, better returns. And what's interesting about digital assets is that this really there there is a tremendous potential here um, to drive those type of returns, but you have tremendous risk um, in fraud, um, bad projects, who do you partner with, and things like that. So um, that's where we come in and really try to work uh, very closely with the CIO or the investment team, um, who generally look at digital assets as part of their fintech allocation. And what they're seeing is that as a certain amount of people go over from fintech and as digital assets grow, they can no longer not have an, ax, uh, a, an expression of an investment view in this. Where before you could say, I hold no digital assets, I don't think crypto is real or anything like that. As it's grown and as more pensions and endowments, especially ones that are more forward thinking, get involved in it, uh, what the people that the institutions are now doing is actually being structurally short um, this space. Um, by not having any of it, um, they're actually underweighted and taking out a view that is actually against it. So even people that aren't necessarily, this is, and this is a very slow moving risk averse group, um, they, are not, they do not want to stand out necessarily from their cohort. So as some of the more forward looking um, bellwether uh, kind of institutions go forward, the uh, kind of faller ones are coming along just to not stand out by being structurally short digital assets. So I found that interesting um, as a way when we talk to pensions and endowments. So the idea here, and I imagine it's probably a controversial one in some quarters, is if you're not long uh, to a certain allocation of crypto, you are structurally short the asset class. As your constituents and your benchmarks and your peers 
and how they represent um, their fintech allocation. As more of them come into this space, if you are not in at a certain point, um, you are uh, in, in a sense uh, structurally shorted um, because their returns will incorporate this while yours will not. So yes. So talking about that as a benchmark, just so people can get a little bit of context here, uh, so they can start to size this. Talk about first of all the size of the industry uh, in terms of what uh, what what pension funds, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds represent in dollar terms, uh, and then also talk about the percentage of the allocations that they allocate to fintech in general, and then specifically within crypto, so we can get at least an order of magnitude estimate on how much money we're talking about here in the space in general. It's the 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 size of the piece in pensions, endowments, foundations, and institutional is in the the hundreds of trillions of dollars. And then yeah. when you look at crypto, um, obviously we're around a trillion, um, tiny. Um, and the fintech piece of that, you know, is in the the tens of trillions, if not a hundred, let's say. So very very small. Um, and, but growing, but growing very quickly. And, and just using the, tri- the sort of trivial math there, yes. if you get one, if you get 1% of the, of the hundred billion in FinTech, it essentially means that you would double the market capitalization of yeah. the asset class of crypto. I mean, which is enormous. Exactly. That's, that's where, when people think about, um, the size of digital assets and, you know, the already the value appreciation that has occurred. Um, this is a space that did not exist before. Um, and when you talk about it in the sense of other asset classes, um, you know, like people often compare Bitcoin to gold, but just for the comparison, you know, gold is maybe seven or eight trillion dollars. And then when you talk about equities, you're talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars. So when you're talking about digital assets, and if you think that there's a potential for replacing uh, some part of the financial system or financialized assets, um, it is incredibly early. And like you say, if only 1% of financialized assets, and some people give that n- number, you know, at 1.4 quadrillion, which is, you know, 1,400 trillion, um, if when you include like notional value of derivatives and things like that, if, if only right. 1% or a half a percent um, of these numbers come over, you're talking about a tenfold increase um, in digital assets from where they are. So it's still incredibly early. Um, this is what gets people excited about this. The, you know, the potential for that type of return is, is very real. It's just the risk mitigation and the stomaching some of the issues in the space on the way to that. And one of that is finding you know, good partners that you can trust to work with, because even though this is a trustless uh, technology and decentralization of trust, you're still often working with partners, either on the asset management side, custody side, exchange side, and we've seen um, that that can fail um, in in sometimes spectacularly, uh, like FTX. Yeah. So uh, that is that that problem. So the returns and the desire to uh, participate in that, and all some of the things around governance and all those things are very enticing. Um, but still, um, losing money in a fraud or being found to be doing something illegal is a much higher pensions and endowments foundations, that is no go. So until those things are um, solved, um, or at least seen to be solved, with indications like Citadel and BlackRock coming in, 
um, it's just no go until those things happen for those type of investors. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Yeah, so well said. And I think it's it's such a great opportunity for people who are listening to this Twitter spaces to get a sense of what this market looks like, because the institutional uh, side of finance is something that most individuals, unless they're fortunate enough to have worked in that space at a certain level, just don't see. Uh, by the way, I get vertigo when I hear 10 to the 15. Uh, it's hard for me to get my head around just how large this space is. But again, that's what we're talking about in terms of the total value of financialized assets. Again, some of those are probably netted out and and hedge positions and other uh, things that uh, that uh, might be a little bit different than traditional investments. But it is important, I think, for people to get a size understanding of this space. Let me ask you this, Rain. When you get on the phone for the first time uh, with someone who works at a pension fund or an endowment what is that conversation like? I think that would be fascinating for our listeners uh, to get a sense of because most of us will never get to be on those calls. It's it's interesting. It's it's very um, hard to um, kind of bucket them all together because it's still very very specific to the institution, um, and it's usually being driven by one or two, often more junior people who have some sort of thesis around digital assets um, and are kind of doing missionary work there. And then um, right. there are people right. that are a little higher up the food chain or just, you know, they're seniors um, that are more suspicious and less, um, you know, just thinking digital assets um, might be, you know, the flavor of the week type of thing. So right. you don't really know. So what I hear, what I hear you saying when I read between the lines is you've got smart people in their twenties and thirties, uh, maybe, uh, and probably some people who are older as well, who are just more forward thinking at these companies who are interested in digital assets because they've they've got their own personal curiosity about it, and they sit on the sidelines for you know a number of years, and then they say, hey, listen, I got to raise the flag uh, at this fund I'm working at. We should be long this because, as you said earlier, uh, if we're not long, we're structurally short relative to other assets. We need to tie yep. this conversation. And then they pick up the phone and they call Rain Steinberg. <laughs> uh, something like that. Um, yes. And uh, well, the interesting thing about it is that while often it will be a younger person that starts the conversation, um, what's fascinating is that digital assets, though, as an idea, once we get past um, this concept of a technology, but when you start to get into like the decentralization of trust and what the actual value proposition is when explained correctly um, and getting past this, just this idea of a very volatile asset class of crypto and um, magic internet money or things like that. But when you're, you're really talking about the value proposition, um, it actually resonates quite well um, with uh, like older generations who have actually been through um, more, uh, you know, risk off events um, like great financial crisis, um, who were around for the you know failures of things like long-term capital management, uh, stock crash in '87. Um, when a lot of our younger uh, compatriots have really only experienced this like great mitigating market and have not experienced uh, you know that many uh, risk-off events. So once you actually um, get past that, this is just some sort of like a whiz bang technological innovation. And when you get down to the heart of it, it actually quite resonates quite well with those people. It's just finding a kind of a language to talk to them about. And this is uh, where my colleague, Jeff Dorman, 
um, and what he puts out uh, a weekly newsletter called Two Satoshis, uh, which anybody can sign up for and get, where he really contextualizes digital assets in a language and lexicon uh, that is accessible to institutional investors and more uh, traditional investors. That's really important because this is really about a narrative and getting people to understand it. Um, and that's how you get adoption. Um, and it's not just for people of a certain generation or age. We're trying to bring everybody right. in a very big tent approach. That's regulators, pensions and endowments, retail. Uh, we think it's appropriate for everyone at the end of the day. So I hear you saying that there's no typical conversation. Everyone is unique, uh, and that makes sense. But you must hear some common themes. Uh, what are some of those themes that you hear in terms of what people are interested in, uh, why they want to take an allocation in the space, and also what some of the structural barriers are at this point in time that hold them up? Sure. So the the number one thing um, that I would say it, when you get down to a pension endowment is that this is an important uh, financial technology innovation, um, and they would like access to it. Um, what's interesting or challenging for them is that a lot of the offerings in this space do not line up um, with the way they typically invest. And for people to understand pension endowment foundations and institutional investing, a lot is controlled by things called consultants, um, where um, they do diligence, uh, the investments, and bring a kind of approved palette of investments uh, to these institutions. And very few digital asset, um, the problem is very few consultants and very few of these institutions have gone through this process with um, digital asset you know, investment choices. So it's very challenging for them in their workflow where they get you know, 10, let's say a biotech um, allocation where they would have 10 appropriate biotech managers or passive instruments or things that they can consider and then go through them and see if they met their investment needs or, you know, how they gelled. Um, that just doesn't exist yet in digital assets. And part of the problem is a lot of the teams and people that come through this, you know, just don't take that normal track um, that lines up with those things. Like I said, this is an innovation that came out of, you know, retail and financial technology and not the typical, um, you know, asset management development. And I can speak a little to this from uh, my time at Wisdom Tree and ETFs. Um, now, um, everybody, you know, thinks ETFs are, you know, a fantastic idea, you know, $10 trillion uh, in the asset class or in, in the structure. Um, even as late as 2000 um, or the early 2000s uh, when I founded or co-founded Wisdom Tree, um, and this is almost, I guess, maybe... 20, 10 years after uh, the innovation was created, financial advisors were still wary of the structure of ETFs just because it was new and there's a high cost to doing something new in financial services if it goes wrong and not a lot of upside for those people making those allocations. So we spent a tremendous time amount of time on just educating people on the structure of ETFs, the benefits around taxes, um, diversification, how you got better costs than mutual funds. And Sometimes that would take five, 10, maybe even 15 touches around that before um, an allocator would get comfortable. Now, everybody's comfortable with ETFs. So it's just a, you know, it's a very, you have to have a very patient approach um, in these circles when you go about this. And our space is not, it's a lot of things, but it's not, I don't think, known uh, for its patience um, around that right. type of stuff. Boy, what an interesting point and the perspective that you bring. Uh, having founded a shop that does 
ETFs. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, when ETFs were seen as something that were, you know, they were the new kid on the block in terms of uh, in terms of a mechanism for getting exposure uh, to, um, you know, to whatever the underlying was. So I guess I should say ETP, more generally exchange traded products, but exchange traded funds specifically when we're talking about U.S. equity. So it is fascinating to hear that as a metaphor uh, and to talk about how it takes time for uh institutional investors to get comfortable and wade into that space. It, it's a really interesting metaphor. Thanks. So, so Rain, I'd, I'd love to open up this conversation to questions. Uh, it's one of the things that we love about Twitter spaces here at Real Vision is how interactive they are. Uh, we'd love to bring some folks in for some questions if you're up for that. Please, question away. All right. First, uh, let's go to Goldmember and Penny. I know you guys have been listening uh, to this conversation. Curious if you guys have any questions for Rain. Yes, uh, Penny. You want to? Do you want to go first? I just saw you take your your mic off. Yeah. Thanks, BJ. Sure. Um, Rain. I just wanted to pick your brain. How long, realistically, do you think it will be until all the old school trad fi funds? especially those that have been so vocally anti-crypto will admit defeat and it will just be the norm <laughs> for them? Ah, uh, That's a good question. Um, hard to say on timing. Um, it, this is one of those things where it's going to be very lumpy and not like a straight line. Like it was very hard to, to see what the catalyst was going to be. And we're not sure if this is the final catalyst of a move up from here and adoption, but BlackRock's filing. Um, and then you see kind of the wave of sentiment change and you're going to start to see many, many more announcements of traditional financial players that either had initiatives working on this or um, have started ones um, are going to come out. Uh, but it just takes a while to work through. So I wouldn't be surprised if this takes, you know, five more years, honestly, um, maybe 10 more years um, to do that. I can tell you that just to use, again, I don't want to beat the ETF metaphor too hard, but um, when we uh, started Wisdom Tree in the early 2000s, it seemed evident that ETFs were a better mousetrap than mutual funds. Um, yet, um, the one thing when we found in Wisdom Tree of our thesis that was incorrect, we thought the funding that we would get would come from traditional asset managers that would want an ETF offering. We had incredible challenges and over 200 no's um, from traditional asset managers that were not interested in offering ETFs because they cannibalize their active um, offerings. And only after the success of iShares and people like that um, were they interested. So I, I think it's going to be quite a while and then kind of a tipping point and then you get past it, but it's going to be quite some time, at least five years, I would say, before it's self-evident and they give up, as you say. Really interesting. And, and then, of course, you have innovation like smart beta ETFs, uh, which occupy kind of a middle ground, I guess, between active and passive. Yes, yes. Um, that All of those things, that was what was so fascinating was because when you think about, and I use, again, this analogy for uh, ETFs and digital assets, um, when the ETF wrapper came out first, um, it was the spider, um, and then iShares locked up Dow Jones and S&P um, and MSCI. But that was as far as the asset management industry could see ETFs going. They were like, okay, all of the existing intellectual property is now in ETFs. What else? There's nothing else that could be done. There right. was no concept of leverage ETFs, smart beta. Uh, we pioneered uh, currency. 
uh, ETFs, you know, um, shorting out currency exposure and things like DXJ. And so the very, the wrapper of the ETF allowed a utility that was not able to be done in 4 p.m. closed mutual funds. That's the same thing I see in digital assets, that this tremendous wrapper of uh, alignment of stakeholders, uh, frictionless um, trading, you know, no exchanges, and infinitesimally small sizes. There's all these ideas that this is better for liquidity, uh, costs, you know, time of trading, things like that. But then the knock-on of effects of when you compress the space between investment vehicles and payment vehicles and the type of innovation that you're going to get over that, we can't even, we don't even understand it yet. And it's so right. much broader than what you can do with ETS that it's, it's really going to be fascinating to see how it evolves. It's going to be, take a while, um, but this is why it's definitely going to displace all these other things. It's just more flexible and has better outcomes. Um, so right. it's, I think it's inevitable, uh, but it's going to take a while. It's, it is truly fascinating. And I, you know, you're, to your point, uh, it, it is a, sort of a question on how far we can lean on that metaphor uh, with ETS before it strains. But it does suggest a couple of interesting things. And, and one, I think that you just touched on there is that the kind of just the unknowability, it's almost like the cone of uncertainty around a hurricane. Uh, you just don't understand where things are going to be because the the, the systems are just too complex and dynamic. Uh, and by the way, we should say not everything in the ETF space works out. I think most uh, people who are following markets are familiar with the XIV implosion, the inverse VIX ETF. Uh, there are times where sometimes the test tubes in the lab uh, explode and the laboratory burns down. Yes, exactly. And I think people have to also uh, take that out more broadly um, when you're talking about innovation in digital assets, that this is unusual when you have a tech innovation dealing very much in real time with real people's money um, like that. So in normal tech innovations, the laboratory burns down, move fast, break things, um, works, um, and you just go into V2 of it. You don't generally have tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or billions of dollars of people's capital kind of locked up in these things. So this is where kind of when people complain about the regulatory bodies or the slowing down of things, that it's actually, I think, a very important and appropriate push-pull on that. Not that regulators get everything right or the industry gets everything right, but right. that kind of interplay is important. And I think we can all admit in digital assets that there have been some rather not good outcomes um, in when the space has been just left to its own devices. Now, what's also yeah. interesting is that in digital assets, things can go away and then be very quickly replaced and rebuild and things like that. And you don't need necessarily a massive intervention or things like that. So yeah. um, that's fascinating too. So that, that um, kind of creative destruction is very much a part of the evolutionary process of digital assets. Yeah, Schumpeterian creative destruction. I guess another fancy 50-cent word here we could use uh, is this sort of ongoing dialectic, the idea that it's basically, uh, you know, it's kind of an argument that you see between the innovation in the space and regulators. Uh, some things work, some things don't. Uh, you pivot to do more of what works, hopefully less of what doesn't, and you have this kind of very complex ongoing dynamic system where you eventually come to uh, some more refined versions of the earlier hypothesis. Agreed. All right, Gold Member, uh, go ahead and unmute and please ask your question for Rain. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys so much for this conversation, Rain. It's just been absolutely wonderful to just hear your insight on, on this space. So thank you again for your time. 
Um, you know, my, my question kind of comes a little bit from, you know, narratives that I've been hearing a lot, particular fr- particularly from the NFT side of things. You know, people are always demanding value or, or utility to be delivered. What, in your opinion, or, or what do you think would be some of those use cases uh, that, you know, some of the bigger players that are sitting on the sideline might find particularly bullish? When you're talking about NFTs specifically? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily have to just be NFTs, but, you know, in the NFT space, we hear always about, you know, the gaming, you know, use case of it. We okay. hear about AI sure. a lot. I'm just curious what some of maybe the use cases that we might not be hearing about that, you know, some might be having conversations about behind the scenes. Um, I still think we're very much in the early stage of infrastructure building. Um, and I think some of the super interesting things that you're seeing are, um, that aren't very sexy, but, um, fascinating are the kind of the evolution of the decentralized exchanges. Um, and even though this is very much, um, about asset market structure and things like that, these are the necessary things that actually have to occur, um, for stuff to happen. Uh, just the same way you weren't really going to get an explosion of the internet um, until you had, you know, broadband and faster, uh, you know, internet access and, you know, that rolled out to places before you could get the really exciting use cases. Um, so I think we're still very much in the infrastructure, UI, UX components. I've seen some really interesting things uh, on wallets um, and, you know, like usability of things happening. So I think this is, we're still in this kind of very, I don't want to say boring because it's exciting to me, but, you know, kind of behind the scenes uh, market structure, infrastructure type of building period that you need to get before this, then um, really the sky's the limit on utility, um, you know, portable identity. He's um, representing the digitized ownership of everything, um, honestly. Um, like I said before, when I was alluding to uh, your um, asset management products and your investment products collapsing down to your payment vehicles. So there won't be any friction between your investment portfolio and your payments. I, I think this is all on the horizon. Um, but like we talked about, you're dealing with real money uh, and it's very hard to innovate in these things. You have to be very careful and patient uh, during these periods. And it's just, it's not something our space is great at on the the patient side i think that forward motion is fantastic but it, it gets ahead of itself uh sometimes so i think the um until just recently a lot of the enthusiasm uh was out of the space are actually quite important and we saw that as very important for the last wave of innovation rain you sound like you're structurally incredibly bullish on the space and saying uh simultaneously it's still extremely early that is correct um, I, I think you can be uh, both. And I think as long as you, uh, this is a space where I, we talk about this at ARCA a lot. It's a space that is constantly trying to make you think short term. And it's, it's, a, it's a really big problem. Um, when you think about um, when you're trying to create projects or do things that you're creating, what's hopefully multi uh, type of outcomes, and you can have a value accretion or change of 10, 100, 1,000 X in the matter of weeks right. or months, um, this really skews you know, people's risk reward mechanisms or how they think about things or what's success. So 
we're really trying to build a company um, in a space that is durable and lasts decades, hopefully hundreds of years. And it's constantly battling that short-term thinking where this is a space that is constantly saying, think about this new thing that's here for a second and maybe doing this and, and really that balance between the two. So I think you can be incredibly bullish, feel it's very early and still think that there's a lot of risk and caution that you have to take when approaching it. Yeah, well said. When I last checked, we had over 100 people in this Twitter spaces. I'd really like to broaden the conversation here, bring some new folks up uh, on stage for some questions. Uh, Bats here, did I, did I goof up your name again? Did I get, it's it, okay. did I get it closer uh, this time? It's okay, Ash. I'll, fi- I'll find one. I'll find a way to forgive you one day. Um, so, <laughs> Wait, say, say it for us. Say it for us. It's uh, Bats. Just call me Batsy. So you, yeah, yeah, you say Batsy. That's right. Yeah, that's close enough. Great. Okay. You know, we're an, you know, we're an American. What are you? Expecting? For an American, yeah, no, no problem. No problem. Uh, so uh, uh, thanks for letting me up, Rain. I have a couple of th- uh, a couple of three questions. So, okay, the first thing is, okay, Bitcoin ETF is looking highly likely. Of course, we didn't have a crystal ball. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Question number one: How soon do you think an ETH ETF is going to uh, will come if it comes that's the first question the next question is when take out your crystal ball make a, a predictive yeah. future when do you think we when do you think the total crypto market caps going to reach 100 trillion uh, which okay. which will bring it similarly to uh, into the into, in line with stocks and kind of which projects that you see now are going to have kind of what what percentage of market share i know it's a complex question but surely you have been thinking about that thank you sure no problem thank you um i will caveat everything with the timing is incredibly hard um but i would say um first part eth uh spot etf um where you were feeling one way about that just even yesterday um some of the rulings and directions that you're getting around ETH, as it currently stands, is looking like it's moving more into that thing um, that could be deemed around something similar to Bitcoin, at least as the way the regulatory bodies perceive it, um, and um, a ETF being pulled forward. So I would say you're definitely going to see Bitcoin spot before it, and I'd still say that that is minimum I, I think you're going to see way more back and forth um on regulatory bodies um than you would in a normal thing so we've seen very positive indications from a blackrock filing but you know they still had to revise it once already and i think you're going to see a lot of back and forth on that so i think you see bitcoin first um then eth um and i would say you're probably not going to see it for at least earliest would be just under a year for Bitcoin ETF, that that would be my guess. Thanks, um, Thanks next for the question, Batsy. Um, I sure. wanted to bring up. I want to bring up. I'm going to screw this up too. Chirag, did I get that close to right? Chirag, can you hear me? Oh, hey everyone. Oh, can you hear me? I'm Alvin. Yeah, loud and clear. You sound great. Perfect. Perfect. How did awesome. I do Thank today? you so much. Oh, uh, right? that, that's good. That's good. Yes, that's right. You got it right. <laughs> awesome. Sure. Thanks Chirag, so much for this really insightful. Uh, yeah, this this Twitter space has been really, really insightful. Actually, thank you so much for your vision. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, I thought so too. 
yeah um so my question would be uh, actually i just want to know what your thoughts on uh, decentralized asset management is i mean we have seen so many uh, platforms like celsius go down and uh, why has this why has decentralized asset management not taken off and what what would we need for like institutional asset management to shift to a decentralized in- infrastructure for their management sure so i would first point out that um we've only really had faux at any scale, faux decentralized asset management. So you've still had uh, some of the issues of centralized asset management. So you have a the appearance of decentralized wrapper, but then you still have a centralized authority making those decisions in a kind of obscure, um, directed way, where if you have a great party doing it, um, maybe the outcomes are good, but then things happen like happened with Celsius um, and you are running into the same problems that we're all trying to avoid with decentralization. So I would say that you really haven't had it yet. Um, And then some of the reasons are there's still challenges around regulation around decentralization and, you know, what a decentralized authority is and um, is it regulatory appropriate or where is the bear there for uh, regulatory compliance, things like that. So there's things that still need to be answered. And then there's also the challenges excuse me, the challenges of running a decentralized organization. And this is something we actually spend a lot of time uh, at Anarcha, um, not so much in decentralized asset managers, but DAOs in general and decentralized projects where governance is just incredibly challenging. Um, There's a reason we have centralization and centralized uh, entities making decisions. It's a much more streamlined ways to do it. And generally when you have a very good centralized authority making good decisions where it's not conflicted, you can actually have good outcomes. Um, and the contrary when that is not true. So we are seeing that it's still very hard to govern and make decisions uh, in decentralized arenas. I don't think this is just you know, a challenge. I think we're gonna overcome it. And there are things that we're working on that are doing better. And we're gonna learn more and more about decentralized government, governance. But I think you're gonna have to solve that before you get really truly decentralized asset management. And also um, we would love to be a part of that. And those are the type of ideas uh, that we have truly decentralized asset management products as well. So stay tuned uh, as it becomes appropriate from offerings uh, at Arca as well. Yeah, you know, decentralization is clearly a spectrum uh, and not an on-off switch. And it takes time, obviously, to get there as well. We're incredibly early in this revolution, I think, at yeah. least I'm just expressing my own opinion. Uh, but it definitely seems like we're heading in that direction. Okay, let's go to DeFi Diffin next, and then we'll get back to Penny for a follow-up in just a second. Uh, guys... Hi, Ray. It's been fascinating listening to you speak. It's been brilliant. Uh, but there's a question that... Hey, welcome back, man. It's great to have you with us again. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks, yeah. Uh, just a question for Ray. If you had to, gun to your head, a sappy seal, a wreck guy, or an MFA, which would you buy? <laughs> gun to head, sappy seal. Gun to head. Done. Quality. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Great answer. Uh, Penny, over to you. Hi, Ray. Um, I don't know whether I missed this earlier, but have you... Hey, I think everybody just got muted there. Something weird happened with the glitches there uh, in Twitter spaces. Penny, if you can hear me, uh, please unmute and uh, continue with your question. Yeah, I don't know how much of that you heard, Ray, but... um... Start, start at the beginning, just just not to be on the safe side. <laughs> it's Twitter, <laughs> man. 
I don't know whether I missed it earlier um, in the daily briefing, but did you say you guys have an NFT fund? Rain, I think you're muted. Let's see if we can get Rain off mute. There you I go. I am now <laughs> unmuted. Sorry about that. Um, I don't believe I mentioned this, um, but we actually do have an NFT fund. Perhaps Jeff spoke about it earlier. Um, yeah, so yeah, we have the yeah. daily briefing. So it was exactly. Yep. Yes, we do have an NFT fund. Uh, we have a very talented portfolio manager named Sasha Fleischman, um, who, if anybody is interested in the NFT space um, and investing in institutional manner in that space, uh, please get in touch with us and I will put you in touch with Sasha. And could I just ask, what's that fund valued at the moment with the NFTs? Um, a, a dollar amount or returns or what are you looking for? A dollar amount, please. Uh, th that we have about, um, it's a called capital fund where we have about 50, we call it 50 million in capital in that fund. Expl explain what that means for folks who may not know. So it's a closed in fund where um, you set a certain amount, people give you commitments um, and then you call capital as it deploys, and um, we're almost done uh, calling the capital. And that I think we have one more capital call uh, left in a fifty million dollar fund. Right. I think it sounds like you just got a little bit faint there. Can you still hear me? This might be. I can. Sooner. Has something happened to? Is this better? Yeah, it just sounded like me? you got a little softer there. This may be just one of the uh, vagaries of Twitter. I'm I'm going to go vagaries of Twitter as I have remained constant. Like Arca, <laughs> never changing, perpetually like a rock. Look and now us. you're back, and now you're loud and clear again. I don't know. Okay, see Twitter, that. not me. Yeah, I'm. I'm Hi. sure that's the case. Uh, by the way, we'd we'd love to get uh, we'd love to get uh, Sasha Fleischman on uh, Real Vision. I think it would be a phenomenal interview. I highly recommend it. Yeah, he's never been with us. Uh, go ahead, Bass. I will make it happen. Wonderful. Thank you um, uh, for my letting me do the follow-up question. So, can you answer my second question that I asked before about the hundred yes. trillion, and then what in terms of market share uh, between projects? You know, uh, yeah. how do you how, how do you see that potentially? I, I think the hundred trillion, um, probably not for a decade, at least. Um, I think you're going to get a lot of resistance, and then. Um, it will move rather quickly. But you, you, you take a look. Again, I, I use uh, the analog of ETFs. Um, the, it's, it's just there's a lot of friction um, in financial services, a lot of gatekeepers, a lot of uh, ways to slow this down. So I just don't think it um, you know, reaches tech innovation uh, type of things. You know, There's different regulatory regimes and places. So it just takes longer. So at least a decade. Um, and I think even that would be fast. That'd be great. So that's kind of, I think, kind of an optimistic, bullish one. And then when we think about protocols and what are the projects um, that are going to be them, that I, I won't even venture, I guess, even though they're the ones that are there now. This is something that I've seen in this space, and this is why um, I really think that still, you know, active management and an approach um, that incorporates people thinking about it is still very important. Um, I come from, you know, a passive world where, um, you know, we designed really fantastic indexes, uh, you know, they had a value tilt, but, and, and we kind of pioneered smart beta, but there was still, you still had efficient markets, the market structure was understood, the players remained the same, like there weren't tremendous innovations in that. Uh, one of the, my first most like humbling experiences with digital assets was I tried to approach it 
in the same way we approached, um, you know, equities. And it was completely wrong. And the indexes I designed were completely obsolete in, all, in a matter of a couple of weeks in some cases. <laughs> and it made me think um, really that you had to approach this in a different way and that, that you would probably not have come up with passive indexing at the beginning of the equity markets either when we were trading you know, stocks under a pear tree uh, when it was very inefficient and there were huge asymmetries of information. So I think that that's the case right now and that we're seeing giant innovations all the time and I don't know where that would come from um, yet. I mean, it looks like ETH is going to be giant um, and you know, a very important thing, but I don't know um, in a couple of years or on the way to 100 trillion. Um, it, it just seems too early to say uh, what that Bitcoin run will be and why you really need to stay engaged with the space. I'll give you my speculation. Please, uh, speculate. I love it. Braver than me. Okay. I, uh, I'm an enterprise guy and I'm about enterprise blockchain solutions. So I think the projects that are offering that, because I think most enterprises are going to move to DLT-based systems. Even if they have Web2 stuff, they're still going to be writing things on the ledger just to prove mm-hmm. what they're doing, even if they don't have smart contracts on their app. But things like Hedera, things like Avalanche, um, uh, you know, things that you know, th- things that people can build businesses on. So things with permissions, things with traceability, things with you know, private and public. Uh, that kind of stuff, I think, will probably gain m- a, a decent market share closer to the 100 trillion mark that's just my two cents no not not financial advice i don't know shit <laughs> I, I i agree uh with the uh with the thesis there um i would say that definitely appears to be uh correct right now my only thing is that this space has changed so much and where it goes changes so much that i many of my <laughs> thoughts i have had to be flexible in certain things, uh, more North Star type things. But I, I would agree broadly with what you say. Thank you. Sure. Rain, we've been at this uh, for about an hour now. Boy, what an extraordinary conversation. You know, I often enjoy our Twitter spaces, but this one has really been just above and beyond. Uh, I'd love to get you on Real Vision to do a deep dive with me, maybe on Real Vision Crypto, maybe more interestingly, you and I should have a deep dive conversation on Real Vision Finance, uh, where we explain to folks in the traditional financial services space uh, what's happening right now in the digital asset space and how some of those parallels from your long and extensive experience uh, working in finance might be relevant uh, to understanding the crypto landscape. Uh, I would love that. Um, We love uh, what you do. Um, We've always found it a fantastic venue. Um, to appear on. Jeff's been there several times. Anytime you would have me, I would love to show up. Well, we, we appreciate that. And I think I'm gonna, we'd love to take you up on that offer. That'd be wonderful. Rain, I, great conversation. We've covered a tremendous amount of ground here. Lots of different topics Some wonderful questions, as always, from our Twitter audience. I, I'm curious, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave us with from this conversation? Um, I, I really... Uh, liked, uh, I don't get a lot of uh, questions where people are talking about uh, the structure and understanding how some of these you know, kind of larger, slow-moving investors uh, move. So I, I enjoyed you going deep there. I think it was hopefully insightful and not ne- necessarily something people always talk about. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I liked uh, both the broadness and specificity of the conversation. I thought it was a, a great um, conversation in that regard. So thank you for leading it. And I would leave people with this. Um, it's very early, guys. Um, 
to get involved, um, learn about it, ask questions, show up to things like this. Um, there are no bad questions. Um, I love the engagement here and thanks to everybody. Well, I can see from all the Twitter emojis, Posh being up on my screen right now, that the audience really loved this conversation as well. Really a pleasure, Rain. And I look forward to continuing it on the Real Vision platform. And of course, everyone who's listening is welcome to join us. We'd love to have you back there as well. I should say, final housekeeping note, we've been talking all week with experts from around the cryptosphere to try and understand where we are and where we're headed. You can watch the entire Real Vision crypto gathering in entirely free in the link pinned to the top of this Twitter spaces or the pin post on the Real Vision Twitter feed. Really wonderful, Ryan. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Incredible conversation, as always. Looking forward to doing it again soon and to continuing this conversation with you, Rain. Thanks again. Thank you. Look forward to it. Have a great day, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best brightest and biggest names in finance.